There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation. Today, I'm delighted to have Wilson Patton and Daniel Marin with me. They are the co-founders of Long Run Capital. It's always really fun to have somebody who is in my backyard. Wilson is a Nashville native, went to school with my younger sister-in-law. So it's always fun to make those type of connections. And we are here to talk about blockchain and investment opportunities. And I have your deck up in front of me. It's really well done. And I love this introductory statement. Blockchain computers are doing for assets what the internet did for information. Could you expound upon that a little bit? We're going to get into definitions and some basics, but would love to hear the investment thesis and a more macro take on what you see in the space today. Absolutely. And as kind of a quick legal disclaimer, we're talking, I guess, more about our personal investment views and not making any solicitation around our fund or even actually speaking about the specific investment thesis of, of the fund, just our personal views. So yeah, that, that what you stated, Brian, a blockchain is doing for assets what the internet did for information. There's a second part to that that we always say, which is the blockchain is making assets globally, instantly, and cheaply transferable. Additionally, it's also making them programmable. And so if you think about what happened with the internet and information, information was essentially paper-based, largely, for a long period of time. But the internet made it so much easier to access and distribute information on a global and cheap and instant basis that information went on to the internet and massive businesses were built around this new tool that enabled the easy transfer and access of information. So what we're seeing with blockchain is that blockchain enables 
you to deal with assets, that is transfer assets, pay people, also even program assets, we'll get into that very easily, much more efficiently from a time and cost perspective. And so our personal theses are that assets will ultimately end up on the blockchain. And that's the kind of baseline from which we are viewing investing in the ecosystem. We believe that massive multi-billion dollar, even trillion dollar businesses will be built on top of this base primitive that we've just kind of expressed. So uh, we're going to get into the nitty gritty here, but just to be helpful to some folks who might not be as familiar, and maybe this is a a good one for Daniel to take, could you just give us kind of a, a blockchain 101 you know, what it is and and maybe more importantly, what it isn't, because I think there are a lot of misconceptions, especially within the investment community uh, about, you know, what what it what it has potentially and what actually is today. Be happy to take that. Fundamentally, a blockchain is nothing more than a computer that can make strong commitments. If, If you were to compare it to, say, the traditional computing paradigm, something like an AWS server, a traditional database or a traditional data center, right? Anybody can go in and, and change the data that's on that database. So if you're hosting on Microsoft's cloud or Amazon or, or even a bank's for that matter, right? You're, you're putting your faith and trust in those individuals who have control over that database, what the balances are, of your bank account are, what how much money you set to someone. That's the way that our world works today. It's, it's a very trust-filled world, if you will. When you have a computer that can make commitments and is not subject to manipulation by any one individual, that changes the way in which you place trust, right? And that's where this term kind of trustless computing comes from. What that means now is when you have value digitally kept in your name, there isn't a single individual that can go and modify that. This is really one of the core principles behind blockchain and the build and the core building block on top of which all of these different products and services are being built on top of which these uh, kind of industries or end industries that are in transition are being disrupted. So we can go down multiple levels below that, but fundamentally that's how I would break down the blockchain computer as a concept. That's helpful and I think well put. We've seen the deflationary impact of technology play out over the last 20 years, right? Things are getting easier, cheaper, friction costs have been reduced, et cetera. You've got a great, you've got a bunch of great quotes in here. One I like a lot from Patrick O'Shaughnessy, when you reduce friction, it has nonlinear impacts on activity and technology. Reduce it 50%. You don't expect 2x the activity. It's something way, way larger. So could you maybe talk about now that we've got this kind of fundamental understanding of what blockchain is and isn't, how it applies within the financial services sphere and where you think the investment opportunity is? Absolutely. I think beginning with perhaps the easiest example is just thinking about the movement of cash on a domestic and global basis. Domestically, I would say we now have tools that make it easier, at least on the front end. You have Venmo, you have Zelle, where it doesn't cost you anything to send a thousand bucks to a friend. It hits their account near immediately. And then even on the back end, the cost to, say, the end bank it is, is pretty low, you know, sub $1. However, what you're not necessarily seeing is how slow ultimate settlement occurs, right? Settlement is still taking on the order of days, not seconds. And so when you think about end markets, particularly the financial market and how they will transition, I like to use this example. 
And I'm going to transfer from kind of thinking about the domestic transfer of cash to the international transfer of cash, because we do live in a global economic world. And so the ability to move cash, we're not even talking about liquid assets, but cash on a global basis is quite important. And so if you think about wanting to send money to Australia or Nigeria, and you're going to even a you know globally established bank, like let's say Bank of America, it's going to take you at best a couple of business days. And at worst, it might be over a week. That's extraordinary that in the 21st century, in 2022, it'll take over a week to get money from the US to, let's say, Australia, potentially. If you're not a ultra wealthy private banking client, it'll also probably cost you for your $50. Now, let's use a simple example in the blockchain ecosystem. Let's say the Solana blockchain. I can use the Solana blockchain right now to send or $10 million to Australia. It'll settle in under three seconds. It'll cost a fraction of a penny, right? That's over a thousand X improvement in time and cost efficiency. And when you think about that level of magnitude of improvement in time and cost efficiency, the new businesses that can be built by this ability to transfer cash, but we haven't even gotten into it, other assets on a global you know, near instant, very cheap basis, there's just tremendous business opportunities that that open up that, that from a technical perspective just weren't feasible before the blockchain computer. Yeah, I remember I did a transaction with a group out of Tel Aviv years ago, six, seven years ago, and they had to move some money. And it was with the Bank of America account ecosystem. And it took, I think, eight business days for the transfer to hit. And I was talking about this last night with a friend. It's insane to me today that we still have to abide by this federal funds wire cutoff in order to make transactions occur where I can, you know, send a friend of mine in India money over WhatsApp today. Right. And so this change is all coming. Could we take this opportunity to differentiate between because we're, we're, we're kind of talking about transfer of assets, blockchain and crypto, maybe how they're different, but how they can work together, because I think oftentimes they become muddled in people's minds and it can be a bit confusing. Yeah, for sure. The interesting thing, if we go back to the history of, of blockchain, you know, the, the first real meaningful blockchain that came onto the market was the Bitcoin blockchain. And the Bitcoin blockchain proved that thesis that we discussed earlier, computer that can make strong commitments, it, it proved that remarkably well. Really, there were two core innovations, right? This proof of work algorithm in conjunction with this notion of a public-private key cryptography. And the bringing of those two together and the proliferation of that in a pretty grassroots way through forums online created over time an appreciation for what this computer could do and essentially an appreciation for the unit of account, which was you know the Bitcoin that you can buy today, right? So the Bitcoin blockchain being unique and distinct from Bitcoin, which is the token that currently trades at north of $40,000. But when it comes to blockchain and crypto, it is, it is very hard to separate them. In some ways, it's, it's, it's like saying, you know, I believe in uh, social networks, but I don't believe in Facebook. It is hard to, se- to, to, to separate them. At the same time, there is a lot of noise in the space. So there's a tension here where 99% possibly, of what is out there is noise, not too dissimilar from what we saw in the 90s, right? The late 90s with the internet, boom and bust. But from that noise, you know, you have certain applications like Amazon, which did see very large corrections in its market cap, right? 90 plus percent. 
today continue to stay focused on its vision and deliver goods and services at a scale that no one could have imagined back at the turn of the millennium. So similarly, blockchain today, right, in and of itself is proving out every day in various applications. Many of them involve, you know, what is colloquially called cryptocurrency, right? You could, you could call Bitcoin cryptocurrency. At the same time, you know, that in, in some ways doesn't do justice to everything that's going on, right? What we're seeing today is businesses that are being formed that are fully on chain, meaning they're fully natively built on blockchain. And what that does for these businesses, it doesn't only provide a really unique platform for their products to be built, but it actually creates a platform for new corporate formation and governance. So some of these businesses don't have a traditional entity. They don't have a a Delaware C-Corp that has equity that you can buy. All of their operations, all of their treasury, all of their governance, all of their employees directly interact with their blockchain-based protocols. And as a result, the equity as well is represented natively on-chain. So it's pretty interesting what we're seeing and, and what's evolving in the space. The evolution from just a single application, which was Bitcoin, to now a proliferation of new ways in which you're leveraging blockchain to offer uh, not only new products to the market, but new ways in which you can actually organize companies and people. That's what we're seeing right now in the blockchain ecosystem. And Brian, maybe to put a little bit more meat on the bones there, you know, we would say that, you know, within the crypto ecosystem, and Daniel alluded to it, there are legitimate businesses. And then there are, I would say, kind of businesses or applications and tokens that are that are more deriving value from like circular speculation. And what we're really excited about ultimately is is those businesses, whether they're built natively on the blockchain or in a more traditional, say, Delaware C Corp, that are leveraging the blockchain to deliver a product or service that is fundamentally better, faster, and cheaper for a business or an end consumer. So for example, we're you know, knowledgeable of a traditionally structured business that's leveraging a blockchain to essentially construct uh, HELOCs on the blockchain and then actually sell those on the blockchain. And it's involved with some some larger, actually traditional banks who are purchasing those loans. And it's our understanding that they've reduced, you know, construction costs at the loan by 120 basis points, which is quite significant. And ultimately, when you look at those improved cost efficiencies, they're going to get past, they'll have to get past the end consumer. They'll probably improve the margin of the lender, but also they'll have to get past to the end consumer as, as competition continues to to also become kind of more efficient in their uh, loan construction processes. And so uh, as we think about this ecosystem, what Daniel and I are excited about, as, as much as we love, you know, Bitcoin, which is which is a speculative asset, what we're very excited about it are the businesses delivering great products and services that are ultimately making the lives of and consumers and this in other businesses better. I, I think many of us understand the opportunity here with blockchain in terms of asset transfers, lending, corporate and capital formation, governance, those seem to be, you know, fairly apparent. But, but let's go through some of the pushback and, and some of the of folks that, that might not have such a rose-tinted view of the space. What do you say to folks that say that blockchain assets are, are overvalued today and that it's very difficult to find fundamental value given the, the froth in the investment market? I would say, I think we would say they are and they aren't. It depends. Very similar to equity markets, right? There's 
oftentimes pockets of, you know, speculative fervor and other pockets of, of great value. And so we're quite selective as we kind of think about, you know, even our personal, say our personal investments to be focused on businesses that if they're more mature, you know, in, in one instance, a, a a lending business that we're big fans of, you know, and has 40% net income margins, is growing of 700% year over year as of the fourth quarter, it was generating $45 million of free cash flow. And it was trading at, I think, 35, 35 times free cash flow. So we would say, hey, that, that looks like value to us, especially relative to just about anything you could find in the traditional public equity markets. On the other end of the case, of the equation, there are you know, tokens in, in the ecosystem that are, you know, affectionately or not so affectionately termed scam coins. And we issue those, you know, as, as, as individuals, because we have, you know, no interest in kind of participating in this, you know, circular speculation that certainly has made a few people rich, but has also made a lot of people poor. And so I think the criticisms are merited in, in certain respects, but I think you have to always be nuanced in your view of any market to understand that, that things tend to be more complicated than maybe they appear at at the surface. And and for any investor who values, you know, cash flows and, and growth, I think that there are compelling investments within the blockchain ecosystem. So let's dive into tokens in particular. They've obviously had a huge run up in valuation and massive volatility over the last few years in particular. And you mentioned some of these scam coins and tokens that are in the marketplace. How can you, you know, underwrite these from a fundamentalist value perspective when you're looking to make potential investments there? And are there only going to be two or three winners in this space and the rest are just going to go to zero? When it comes to tokens, right? I think that that is uh, tying back to what we discussed earlier, uh, which is now that you have businesses that are being fully formed on the blockchain, and in many cases, you have businesses that don't actually have formal corporation that you can buy equity in. If the token is structured properly and if the vision of the management team is is such, you can actually view these tokens in, in many ways as the digitally native equity of these digitally native businesses. Some of them, just like a, a, a traditional equity, you know, have a have a fixed supply. So if we if we think about the way in which you value an equity, what do you what is it fundamentally? It's, I mean it's a set of contracts, right, that are written by lawyers. That are then enforced by some jurisdiction, and that jurisdiction, you know, if you're in the U.S. or if you're in France or in Australia, has its own rules and, and regs. Similarly, for these businesses, there's still a set of contracts, right? They're they're smart contracts. They're not written by lawyers. They're written by engineers, and and they're not enforced by the government directly. They're actually even more directly enforced by the underlying blockchain. So that digitally native equity, we would call a token. We think you can do a lot of the same research. An analysis that you would do on a traditional asset that is accumulating cash flows. And, and you would do that by, say, looking at the management teams, looking at the product roadmap, looking at where is the product today in terms of its product market fit? What kind of customers does it have? What are the competitive barriers to entry, the moats that these businesses have? We even look at things like the amount of revenue that these protocols are generating per employee. And in some cases, it's astronomical what they're able to accomplish. So as it pertains to the underlying valuation methodology, it's quite interesting. In some ways, it operates like a private market. In other ways, a lot of the information is publicly available. But that's where the kind of magic happens. And that's where you have to roll up your sleeves because there isn't a formally audited financial statement once a 
quarter that these businesses are issuing. On the other hand, their bank accounts effectively are available to you 24-7. If you go onto the blockchain, you can see what are the transactions that are happening today. And then deciphering those is another question. Once you build out a picture of each of these businesses and you understand and you try to accumulate all of the data that's available to you from the different wallets, you can start to build out financial pro forma. You can see what their expenses are. And at the end of the day, you can get to that bottom line with varying degrees of accuracy. And that's kind of the framework and the basis on which you could do now your various analyses, whether they're you know, discounted cash flow analyses or your price to earnings analyses. And I think that's the world in which we're operating. It's just been happening over the last few years, and we believe it's going to happen more and more in the next five to 10 years. Will we see more or less volatility on a go-forward basis within the token world? We're recording this April of 2022. The, the, there's the phrase that, you know, scams pump the hardest. So I think that that occurs in the traditional equities markets and that it will occur here. I think we will see volatility in this space, but as the markets mature and as valuation frameworks become more widely adopted, I think it'll be natural to see that certain offerings, if you will, in the market will see potentially less volatility. But just as we see volatility today in the public equities more than we've yeah, I've imagined over the last decade, right? I think we're we're going to see you know similar things occur in this market over time. There will be volatility, probably not to a much lesser degree than what we saw over the five, ten degree, ten years, but maybe maybe to some some degree. I mean, if 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 in volatility you think that there will be similar gains to be had by looking at some of the other ways in which tokens have have performed if there's no merit or no basis under which their business is delivering sustainable products and services, I think we'll continue to see extreme volatility in those cases. And in the cases where there's real sound value that's being delivered to some end consumer, sure, there will be volatility, but I think there's always going to be some reversion to the mean that occurs over a long enough period of time. So looking out three to five years, Bitcoin and Ethereum, still the market leaders in the space, your personal opinion? So Bitcoin... Uh, as Wilson mentioned, would would sit in a very unique category of being a speculative asset, one that we we don't dislike, but it it fundamentally cannot be valued on a way in which you would value more traditional business. Right? It doesn't produce anything for you. If you have one Bitcoin, it will always be one Bitcoin, and it's it's very much you know as as Buffett likes to you know call gold. Right? You, you, you can look at it. But but it's not going to it's not going to be like a farm. It's not going to be like a business. And so Bitcoin has that as as just a fundamental basis, and and therefore any valuation framework would would have to be one that that fits within that paradigm. I think Bitcoin stands apart in that it is the only proof of work algorithm that is very dedicated, meaning that it is really using one very specific form of consensus, and it is dedicated to that cause. There's no other blockchain that has the same amount of energy that is securing its network that the Bitcoin algorithm has. And therefore, you know, it has a very good potential to continue to play the role that it's playing, which is this digital store of value. With Ethereum, it's it's a totally different question, right? Ethereum has a lot of competitors that are looking to be the smart contract, you know, of the day, the best smart contract. Ethereum has legacy behind it. It has a lot of composable smart contracts and libraries that have built. So that creates some level of competitive moat for it. It it definitely has quite a a lot of engineers and developers that are working on it on a day-to-day basis. And some of the most impressive volumes of usage in terms of dollar value that's flowing into it. 
but it has certainly large flaws as, as we're probably all aware that the cost to transact on this network. And it's going through a very interesting transition period right now from proof of work, which once again, is the consensus mechanism that has been proved at scale to proof of stake, which isn't necessarily bad, but it certainly doesn't have the history, the legacy, the robustness, and the kind of testing that proof of work has had. So that's also going to be an interesting transition and and one that is very important for Ethereum as it looks to figure out its scaling and its costs. So whether or not Ethereum can come under pressure from some of its competitors, there are certainly lots of folks who are looking to solve this problem. I think it'll be it'll be an interesting uh, next few years to see how this evolves. Will you have one iPhone? Will you have an iPhone and an Android? I think that's really the, the, the question for Ethereum and its competitors. Quite quite a distinct analysis from yeah, I mean, I think we would we would say Bitcoin is likely to remain the market leader as a digital store of value. Ethereum's competitive positioning as the smart contract platform of choice is much more challenged. It, it won't certainly be dethroned, but certainly much more challenged as you see other smart ca- contract platforms, particularly like you know, Solana, for example, or Avalanche, that do both certain attributes and qualities that in certain respects are, are much more attractive, uh, especially when you think about transaction costs and speed, which are quite critical when it comes to building any sort of you know financial application at scale. <laughs> a very investor response, but it, you know I think probably a fair one. What are some things that you're just redline not investing in? What are some areas that maybe people are familiar with through the media or they hear about and for whatever reason, you just can't get comfortable there today. It doesn't have to be for the rest of your lives, but what are some things that are just a no-go for you right now? Dogecoin. Uh, yeah, Dogecoin would s- sit squarely in the uh, speculative and, and and purely unattractive asset space. And, and I would add that we're not uh, on a personal basis deploying any capital right now into a lot of the hot metaverse names. Not that we don't believe in them, but we're not fully convinced as of yet I would say we're, we're certainly not convinced the valuations are merited given the actual usage. When you, you see that, you know, things like Sandbox or Decentraland have you know, sub 100,000 monthly active users, and in some cases, much lower than that. I uh, just don't see how that yet commands a, you know, multi-billion dollar valuation, especially when you, you know, kind of step back and say, if the metaverse is ultimately a digital meeting place, it's very possible that, you know, these platforms are, are actually not properly even identify what their their biggest competition is. You know, one could argue that Discord is actually kind of becoming a, a metaverse of, of, of sorts with you know massive amounts of adoption, tremendous numbers of people interacting there on both a social basis and a work basis. So I would say the metaverse uh, is something that we're quite interested in and thinking about, but you know, we have not been deploying capital, you know, over the past call it several months as as the topic has gained so much steam in the the crypto community and beyond. And how much of that has to do, well, a broader question, I suppose. How do you underwrite the regulatory risk here? And how do you track the regulatory environment given, based on the big tech congressional hearings, it seems like lawmakers have very little basis of understanding on, on even just, you know, fundamentally tech in general, let alone some of these more esoteric investment strategies and niches? Yeah, I think the, you know, the regulatory landscape is certainly you know, one in which there are, there's a legacy system and it's important to respect and, you know, look at that legacy system and abide by it. I think the interesting, you know, 
discussions are around, you know, FinCEN laws, you know, obviously securities laws. Certainly now that we see some businesses that are in the lending space, you know, banking laws, KYC, AML, these are all spaces that have been operating in a, a domain that's had, you know, for the most part, very limited change and, and very predictable change for decades. And now there is a, a freight train that has just come through the wall and, uh, you know, papers are flying out the back, they're on fire. And so I, I, I really respect the regulators in this country. I think they are doing a really hard job of figuring out, you know, ultimately how to protect consumers, which is the job of regulators, but also not stifle innovation. And, you know, we've, we've seen in the kind of tech boom, there arguably has been, you know, in, in the information domain, there's been a lot of opportunities for regulation to, to help. And, and a lot of things moved very quickly and arguably, you know, to the, to the disadvantage of, of consumers, but there's also been a lot of good that's been created. So this tension, I think that, that we'll see going forward is, is going to be very similar to the tension that we saw um, with the rise of Google and Facebook and Instagram and 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 many of the other uh, tech businesses that kind of came when information started to get democratized and distributed and brought to the markets in a, in a way that had never been done before. And now we're seeing that with assets. And and I think it's going to be a similar tension and one that I'm confident as 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 the U.S. has has done before. I'm confident that there will be a, a group of folks both on the private side and the public side. That that try to you know walk this very fine line of protecting people and not stifling innovation. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. A political answer to a political question. So let's, uh, Brian, we can, we can get a little bit more specific there. You know, I would say, uh, specifically Biden's executive order was viewed broadly as actually bullish for the crypto community. There was no mention of, or, and certainly no commendation of Gary Gensler and the SEC, which has taken a harsher stance towards the uh, community and the industry. Additionally, Daniel and I have had conversations with individual senators and have been actually quite impressed by the knowledge that they've that they that they've demonstrated about the ecosystem, their intellect and ability to get up to speed quickly, and their desire to protect consumers, but also ensure that innovation continues. So uh, you know, there I would say are a couple of reasons to believe that regulation is actually heading in the right direction. I would add that the Democratic Party, which was, you know, largely kind of more adversarial to the crypto ecosystem has uh, certainly changed its tune a bit. It, that's not entirely surprising when you think about kind of their voter base being, you know, lots of times younger, wealthier, you know, millennials on, on the coasts. Uh, and that if you kind of overlap that with who owns a lot of crypto assets, it tends to be younger, wealthier millennials on the coast. So uh, I would say there's a lot of tailwinds in the space and the ecosystem. Also, uh, a number of kind of prominent um, actors in the ecosystem, like Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX and uh, Andreessen Horowitz, have been quite active in, in making visits to Washington, interacting uh, with senators, with politicians, to help them get educated, get up to speed, and retain, you know, the, the U.S.'s, Daniel mentioned, kind of forward-thinking 
stance towards towards technology and ensuring that regulation protects people while also enabling technology to actually, you know, benefit the end consumer. So it, that that's, I would say, hopefully like a little bit more specific, but a reason to, or reasons to believe that that regulation will head in the right direction. We would also add that there are examples of technology companies that completely flouted regulation and, and even just knowingly did things that were, were absolutely illegal. Uber is a, is a great example. And you kind of look at Uber's ultimately feared that that regulatory and, and legal storm fine, despite some flagrant violations of the law. And a lot of it is because at the end of the day, the cat was out of the bag. People loved Uber. It was delivering a great product and service, the end consumer. And so there is, I would say, a bent towards when a technology or a business is offering something that people, uh, U.S. citizens love and, and demand, there's ultimately uh, a bending of the political will for that technology or that company to continue to be able to deliver that that product and service that people love. Daniel, how much does your experience living abroad color your investment thesis? It's a yeah, it's an interesting question. Like when I when I was five years old, I, I was living in uh, Indonesia, and um, you know at the, at the time there was uh, of course there's a lot of debate on and what exactly happened, but at a high level you could say well you know the, the Thai government you know seeing this opportunity to take in a lot of foreign debt and uh, not only invest that in their own country but also invest that in the surrounding tigers, which were great countries, including. Indonesia, the Philippines, and like anything, when you you invest, if there isn't enough usage to pay back that debt, well, there become some issues. And that's, I think, what happened in, in the region in 1998, 1999. We saw a lot of investment into bridges and roads and all good things, just the usage wasn't there. And, and, and as the debt started to default, you know, the Thai bot actually at the time was a stable coin, right? It was pegged uh, to the US dollar. And the uh, central bank started to use their reserves to bail out the other banks until there were no more reserves and it depegged. And then within a few months, the currency had devalued dramatically. And, and shortly thereafter, you know, the Indonesian currencies and, and, and the other currencies in the region started to devalue and, you know, 70% overnight. And then the markets in Indonesia, for example, collapsed by 50%. So that's a pretty dramatic, you know, compounded currency plus market devaluation and, and, a lot of wealth was eroded, and it, the sad thing at the time was it was it was a socioeconomic issue as well because you know there was this these ethnic there are two distinct ethnic groups in Indonesia, and at, at the time one of the minority ethnic groups was being persecuted pretty heavily because they were viewed as the wealthier group, and so violence broke out in the streets and there were riots and thousands of people got killed overnight in just awful ways, and that's why in, in large part. We left the country. Well, for one, expats were required to leave the country at one point. But the 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 notion of how how can a financial system have a very dramatic impact on people's lives? Uh, you know, literally the difference between life or death, and certainly just heartache and hardship, and 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 creating, you know, just forcing factors for people to leave their homes entirely and travel across the globe. I think it is certainly interesting dynamic that I came to appreciate, I would say later in life, as I think about, you know, new and better financial systems, uh, products and services and the ways in which that kind of trickles all the way up to just what is what is good money and what is bad money. So this begs the question, I, I've been hanging out with some pretty hardcore crypto people through various conferences and social media, whatever we call this world we live in right now. Do you believe that crypto and blockchain 
and some of these other advances will ultimately lead to the failure of nation states. If, if, if you take the thesis that some of these central governments and central banks don't necessarily have everyone's best interests in mind, could you see a pathway there? Not necessarily saying the U.S., but within some of these underperforming countries where people can be truly global citizens. Do you think that's a legitimate outcome? For people who are just listening to the audio, they're just staring off into space, contemplating I, I how to can, answer I this can, question. Uh, I can answer first, and then I'll let Daniel follow. I don't know that it would necessarily lead to the demise of a nation state, but I would say that you can see a tremendous net benefit to individuals who live in nation states with hyperinflation. And you're already beginning to see it, right? Hyperinflation, political instability, you know, lack of confidence in the central bank or the currency, right? You know, seeing, you know, Bitcoin becoming legal tender and or transactions in crypto are high. So if you think about like living in a place like Argentina or Venezuela or El Salvador, or even today, Ukraine, right? The ability to access the global economy through just your computer is a significant unlock for the well-being of, of people. And ultimately thinking about the ability of to now actually pay people for services totally outside of, you know, the banking system is, is cataclysmic. When you think about kind of low wage work, for example, that can be done online or even high wage work, like, you know, software engineering, you know, there's a ton of software engineers right now, for example, in Ukraine, right? And so the ability to be able to essentially make direct payments to them via certain blockchains is, is excellent. On the flip side, there's certain folks in the you know Philippines or Argentina who in Venezuela, I know of as well, who are, are doing certain blockchain native essentially tasks and being paid in crypto, right? In via tokens. And they're making, you know, call it double their their living wage. Now, some of those jobs they're doing, it's not clear potentially right now how sustainable they are. And I I always want to give a fair glance as to what's occurring in the ecosystem. A lot of times, one of the best, biggest examples is uh, actually playing this game called Axie Infinity. And and it's unclear whether some of the uh, token structures in that in that game and compensation structures for individuals playing that game can can endure. All that said, I think it's proven an important kind of principle, which is there there is a cheap labor that has access to the internet that can essentially perform certain tasks and be paid, you know, via the blockchain. And that's a tremendous unlock when you think about, you know, places where there's hyperinflation and high unemployment, the ability to, you know, put those people to work via the internet and then pay them via the internet, particularly the blockchain. So I think, you know, will it lead to the demise of nation states? I certainly wouldn't authoritatively say yes, but I do think it empowers individuals in nation states that, as I think you mentioned, are are underperforming perhaps dramatically and actually empowers the individual to you know provide for themselves and their families in a way that wasn't previously possible. And that's absolutely a net good for society. It certainly would present some interesting opportunities if if we did see the continued trajectory, you know, the potential reconstitution of certain states that were failing, you could imagine a situation in which, you know, the relative asset value of, of the state and the holder of these assets that are theoretically, you know, a good indication of, of you know, real value say in, in the kind of inflation term, in inflation adjusted terms, you would say that the notion of there being this perfect inflection of uh, real value, you know, look appearing as it's increasing actually just staying stable and, and, and a nation state's assets uh, devaluing substantially very quickly and the need for some infusion in exchange for some s- sovereignty or it's of a cer- certain group or certain you know influential 
notions of how to change the policies or of what you would do regulatorily to potentially, you know, create some change within that nation state in, in exchange for that infusion, you know, effectively, you know, not to be too overt, but buying a country, you know, would that, would that be possible? And for the betterment of the country too, you know, in many cases, it is a minority group that does actually have outsized influence on, on a state. And so it would be interesting to see, you know, assuming that it was with the right intentions, would there be the opportunity to reconstitute some of these uh, you know, failing nations? That it is a very interesting question. Yeah, I'm just not sure the value proposition in some of these countries of shared defense, right, or the military correlating with taxes. I think you're going to see massive migration across large swaths of the of the world. Just my opinion, um, and this is going to enable that migration, kind of like what you're seeing play out in Russia right now with a lot of this tech population and kind of younger folks looking to migrate out. I think we're going to see more and more of that. So I think I've asked you enough unfair questions, um, <laughs> but I really appreciate the time. Um, I'm going to le- leave this with just one more, and I want one from each of you. And this is not an endorsement, but what are your, what do you think are the most, the most exciting investment idea that you have right now as of today? What's the most exciting place to put capital in your opinion? We'll start with you, Daniel. <clears throat> so one of the interesting questions in this space is, you know, what, what are the real world applications of blockchain, right? I mean, it's great. It's this digital money, but is there anything real like happening? One really simple data point is there's $180 billion of real US dollars locked in the blockchain ecosystem right now. And I'm just talking about stable coins that are in some way or another pegged to the US dollar or actually represent real US dollars that are focused on this ecosystem and are cannot be used in any other ecosystem. I think that's a really interesting data point. And as a result, I think we're going to see over the next five or 10 years, certain opportunities that are going to bring more real world assets, specifically real debts and real opportunities to tokenize these debts. There are certain protocols that are doing a great job at that. One of the ones we we like to talk about often, it's just one that has a really impressive balance sheet. It has a pretty big moat. You know, it's, it's it, you know, it's not an endorsement, but just in terms of its products, its services, how it's offering its its product to the surface, you know, it, MakerDAO would be doing a really interesting job of creating something that, you know, could theoretically play a big role in the transition from more and more real world assets to this digitally native blockchain ecosystem. And, and putting a, a little bit of financial meat, I, I actually was referencing MakerDAO earlier. If you look at kind of fourth quarter of last year financials, you know, it grew revenue 700% quarter year over year. It was generating $45 million free cash flow, trading at about 35 times that. And you know, relative to pretty much any fintech stock trading on you know, the NASDAQ, looked uh, quite attractive, it, you know, again, not an endorsement, but in our kind of personal opinions. And so, you know, w- one other earlier stage business that that we find interesting, uh, again, not an endorsement, is a, a business called the uh, SSV network. And the token there is SSV. And we are quite interested in this business. And essentially what it does is it provides uh, quote unquote decentralized staking services within the Ethereum blockchain ecosystem. And without going into too much detail, you can quote unquote stake Ether as a, as a holder of Ether and earn a yield associated with that. But when you stake that Ether, there are certain responsibilities that the, that the person actually managing that Ether has. And if, if they don't 
effectuate those responsibilities, then you can lose a portion of, of your ether. And so essentially what SSV is doing is it is allowing somebody with, say, two ether or three ether or four ether to disperse their ether across several different individuals or institutions who are who are providing the staking service and enabling uh, you to access that yield. And so that, as an individual, reduces your your risk of, of, of loss associated with some mismanagement of the Ether. But for the Ethereum community, the value proposition is quite high because it, quote-unquote, decentralizes who is actually conducting this staking function. And as anybody kind of familiar with the blockchain ecosystem is aware, decentralization is kind of a core cultural an intellectual tenant of the of the ecosystem, and so we would say SSV is is working kind of a directionally in, in the best interest of of those customers that it would have who are staking ether, and it is also working directly in line with kind of the cultural ethos of the Ethereum community and the broader crypto community. And so I think right now it has one point four billion dollars of of ether being staked through it, and you know give or take a two hundred million dollar market cap. So we would say, you know, as, as we kind of back into some back of the envelope math and where it could ultimately scale to, especially with uh, a lot more staking likely to occur over the coming months with the merge from proof of work to proof of stake. Uh, we think that it's a pretty value, uh, attractive value proposition, certainly more of a, of a venture-like investment, but one that we think could render, you know, attractive uh, risk-adjusted returns. Well, I want to thank you both for the time. It was great. We might have to do a part two because we didn't get through all my unfair questions. I have a lot more to throw at you. If people are interested in connecting with you to learn more about the work you're doing and maybe just pick your brain a little bit on the space, what's the best way for them to uh, get in touch? Absolutely. You can um, grab us and, and we're glad to include, I'm, I'm glad to include my email on that, the podcast description, but you can email me at, at wpatton, P-A-T-T-O-N, at longrun.capital. And you know, we're glad to interact, answer questions, collaborate with other people in the space. We really enjoy helping people understand the ecosystem. There's a lot of terminology that initially is difficult to understand. But at the baseline, this is just another computer that enables businesses to do really cool things. And you know, we want to help people understand that. And so, yeah, you can, you can uh, email me and, uh, and then you know, connect with our team via that. And we'll include content information in the show notes as well. I want to thank you both for taking the time. It was great, super educational, and I wish you the best of luck moving forward. Brian, thanks very much for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 